don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This is Social Minds, the UK's first dedicated social media marketing podcast brought to you by Social Chain. I'm Theo. And I'm Eve. And each week we'll be joined by a host of progressive minds to learn the unique and innovative ways that social media is being used around the world. On this podcast, we'll be discussing the latest developments across social and what they mean for us all. And if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to get new episodes every week. This week on Social Minds. The only thing that really matters is like the quality of your content. We were joined by Ash Reed, the editorial director at Buffer, a social media management platform that puts a lot of its resources into social first research. Yes, earlier this year, Social Chain and Buffer collaborated on the State of Social report for 2019. And within that, there were loads and loads of interesting facts about marketers' approach to influencer marketing and also Messenger. So we covered some of those and asked how marketers can use data in a way that gets them ahead of platform updates and algorithms. I think, yeah, we need to start thinking in funnels rather than like engagement as this holy grail of social media. All this and more coming up. How can marketers use data to get ahead of platform updates? Yeah, so um, that's a, a good one. I think it's definitely hard to stay ahead fully, but I think, um, you know, with data can kind of tell you the story of like what's happening and Normally when a big platform change is upcoming, you kind of start to notice the trends a couple of weeks in advance or like just before they announce it. Um, I remember years ago, like when the Facebook kind of organic reach first crashed, you know, we all started noticing it in our like Facebook data and then kind of went to our account managers and were like, the you know, reach is gone, what's happening? And then it kind of came out that, yeah, they're testing out some different things, trying that. So... I think, yeah, looking at your own personal data is a good way to see it. Like, you know, if maybe 30 second videos were getting the most reach for you and now you're seeing that decline, like it's probably telling you to try something else, maybe a longer video. Um, and I think you can also like alongside data, look at two other areas um, like monetization for the platforms themselves. So, you know, they're in the end, at the end of the day, they're always going to try and push you towards what's going to keep people on the site for the longest. So, you know, if shorter videos stop working, like Facebook probably want longer videos so they can sell more ads, keep people on the site longer and drive more revenue from it. So I think you can look at that, but then also like the consumer behavior, which probably would show up in your data as well. But um, for example, a couple of years ago, I think it was the information released this um, study from Facebook where they kind of found out that um, the number of like user generated posts had dipped like quite significantly. So people weren't like taking the phone out, taking a picture and putting it on Facebook anymore. And that kind of, you know, I think has led us to the place where stories is now in every product mm. because they want people sharing their in the moment kind of events on Facebook rather than Snapchat and other platforms. And I think also like the rise of groups and communities and, you know, potentially on Instagram, like there's always the rumors of like following hashtags and yeah. topics yeah. rather what than people. And I think, yeah, all of that combined can kind of try and tell the story of where the platforms are going. Have you seen patterns emerge though? Because there's always, uh, we see ourselves that Facebook will release X updates and then suddenly, like with live streaming, engagement will be so high on that. But then is it ever a myth or is it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's one of those things where it's like the first mover advantage is always a thing on social platforms. So like the first ones to 
really go all in on live video when it comes out. You know, it's the new thing. Everyone's looking for it. And, you know, for a consumer perspective, like they've not seen it before. So they're going to tune in and see what's going on and what's this like new thing in my feed. And then I think after a while it kind of dies down and then, you know, it's just back to where we were with, you know, the best content shines through. I think it kind of happens in cycles. Like years ago, it was every Facebook status needs a photo with it. Then it was video, then it was live video. And, you know, it's just kind of continually evolving and changing. So yeah, I think, you know, there is definite, definite first mover advantage, but that doesn't last forever. Mm. How important would you say it is for brands and marketers to pay attention to these um, patterns and, and their data when making creative decisions and changes to their strategy? I know we, we've asked a few people now, but I'd be interested to get your take on whether or not you think getting too hung up on the numbers uh, when it comes to your creative output can actually hinder your creativity. Yeah, so I think you can definitely get like too drawn into your numbers. So I think numbers are great for kind of providing a baseline, giving you kind of your basic engagement stats and getting started. But I think like following the best practices and what's working now is almost like a, a dead end in the long run because it's going to work for so long and then it's not going to work. Mm. Um, I think there's this like Silicon Valley investor guy, um, Andrew Chen, he calls it like the law of shitty click-throughs. Like <laughs> banner ads worked, now they don't. Yeah. Like video will work for a while, soon it won't, or yeah. you know, different forms of video will take um, prevalence. So I think it's like be data guided, but just like not data driven. Like just because your data doesn't tell you something, like you can go and do it. Like if you want to go and release a three hour video on Facebook through like a creative ex like experiment or just something that you want to do, like go and do it. And mm. um, don't let the data stop you and kind of make you just stick to the best practice and guidelines because like the next like, game changing content isn't going to come from doing what everyone else is doing and what everyone kind of recommends. Yeah. Are you, are you seeing any um, signs emerging that the next game changing thing might be coming along to replace video? Do you think like your access to so much data will give you a, a head start in predicting what's next? So this is like my personal one, like, I'm very much in the lane of like stories will take over everything um, and that like the feed will become secondary like if it kind of hasn't already. Yeah. There's talk of them merging the two, isn't there, that I've seen recently. Yeah, the recent tests that, uh, that Facebook The, the newsfeed will be like a click through mm. kind of stories interface. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of think it's almost like I remember when I first got on Facebook, like the profile was the big thing. And like on MySpace, it was always like, make sure your profile looks cool and add all this really terrible HTML and all of this to it. Yeah. And like, I think on Facebook, yeah, we're now at the stage where you know, the news feed has served us or served the company really well for like 10 years, but it's just kind of not the place I think everything will happen going forwards. Mm -hmm. And I think people are kind of moving towards that, like stories and in the moment sharing and like mm -hmm. private communities and DMs. Like, you know, most of the time now when I use products, it's kind of not so much sharing with the world what I'm doing, but like a couple of close friends and like, you know, normally it'll lead to DMs or like maybe you put something on stories and two or three people message you about it. Like it's not public comments and all of that anymore. So mm. I think we're moving towards a place where like the feed and kind of putting yourself out there in front of everyone is kind of coming to an end. And I think, yeah, that will probably lead to the rise of stories and, you know, 
maybe kind of like longer form, like destination content. Do, so, you, do you think like a move towards a stories-based Facebook would be compatible with the way its advertising model works? I think not right now. I think that would be the biggest obstacle for them is yeah. like the newsfeed is responsible for so much of its revenue. Like I don't know how they replace that if they, you know, shut off the newsfeed today, like they would be in trouble. Mm. But I think it's almost like anything with Facebook, especially like they make a change and then the consumers eventually adapt because they just never yeah. leave the platform. Although I would argue when it comes to vertical videos, saying like stories, it's the consumer that's forced Facebook to have to react to that like off the back of Snapchat mm, and things like that. Mm. I know you guys did some interesting research on vertical video versus horizontal and square. Yeah, yeah, we did. So for the last kind of couple of years, we've done um, studies with a company called Animoto, which is like a kind of animated video um, app. And, you know, this year we studied vertical versus square video, kind of seeing, um, you know, what gets better engagement, um, better reach. And like, for us, it was really interesting to see the results. So the, um, I'll just check my data to make sure I'm getting it right. But like on Facebook um, ads, we tested vertical video versus square video. So like exactly the same content, um, just different size videos. And the um, cost per view was 68% cheaper for us and then 26% cheaper for Animoto on vertical. So that was definitely like a, a good sign for, yeah. for people engaging with vertical. And then we also ran those tests across Instagram as well. And on Instagram, the cost per, cost per thousand impressions um, was much lower on stories versus the feed. And then in actual engagement in the feed, when we were posting videos um, like square and horizontal, um, square and vertical videos, the um, vertical ones were getting 13% more three second views and then over 100% more views um, lasting like half the video or longer. So like really, really useful information there. And I think it's really great to kind of put some numbers behind something that we were maybe seeing behind the scenes you yeah. know, at, at our company. And yeah, it's good to see proof. And a lot of people have still been, well, I say people, like brands and marketers have been a little bit sceptical of vertical video, mm, but to mm. see that it actually is providing better results than horizontal and square is really interesting. It's a, it's a massive average. I'm keen to know as well, what 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 then is the, do you find is the brand response to that? Because naturally, uh, there's going to be marketers in the room thinking, right, strategy change, let's shift everything. Mm. How does that play out? Yeah, so I think um, it's kind of often stuff like that will be met with like a little bit of pushback. So I mean, especially vertical video, it's like there's definitely a bit of a stigma around it because people are so used to holding their phones horizontally and filming that way. And like that's just been the way it's always been since mm. we've had smartphones. And I think there's like a bit of a challenge there with people just kind of breaking their habits and what they see is like fundamentally wrong. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a challenge there, but I think the other challenge is like when we do like the state of social, um, you know, we always see from brands, especially like the smaller ones that are some of our customers where, you know, they don't have the budgets and time to invest in these things. And I think that's always the point of friction is like, at what point can I, you know, put the budget all into vertical, yeah. whereas now I'm spending what I do have on Square and like, how do I find the software to do this? And it's not, for a lot of companies, it's not as easy as like, okay, let's just start testing it and maybe mm. we'll do like 5% of our videos as vertical for now. It's mm. just like, there are a lot of logistical challenges there to actually get to a stage where they can yeah. do it. It's not every company has like the resources to take no. that 
risk. And do you then, with that then, do you then see a, a sort of massive unfair advantage between the larger corporations and sort of uh, SMEs who you kind of work with? Yeah, I think so. I think the, I think it's definitely a massive unfair advantage in some respects, but I think also a lot of like kind of SMEs aren't necessarily on like the cutting edge or don't necessarily need to be on the cutting edge of social media. It's kind of like, I think things like filter down. So it's kind of like the big brands with the big agencies and creative like people budgets and all of this will go and, you know, figure out what's next. And then gradually that kind of filters down. So, you know, we don't necessarily see, you know, an SME investing in an episodic video series for Facebook. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, it's kind of filtering down, but then also ability to access the tech is a big thing. So like stories, anyone can jump in, they can do it, they can start publishing them right away. So that's kind of an easy one to push the smaller companies. But then, yeah, like a big budget video is is much harder to convince people to go for. Do you find that smaller businesses then sort of wait for the big brands to to try out these new things and take those risks for them and then they can sort of see how it plays out and if it's a good idea or not then they might be willing to put some time and money into it yeah i think so i think that's kind of where um the best practices come from it's kind of like with um any new type of like format maybe stories maybe vertical video even just video on in social in general like the bigger brands that maybe have more room to risk things and try stuff that doesn't work, um, you know, they will figure out how it works. Mm. And then I think the you then get the kind of insights and the studies come out about how, you know, Nike does this, ASOS does this. Yeah. And then there's like the little nuggets that the smaller companies can then adapt and say like, mm. oh, we can take this and implement that in our strategy rather than kind of go in gung-ho on something that's fairly unproven for them. Sure. Does that, does that not then... Um rid them of having first mover advantage? I think it does in some respects. Like I think it's hard for them to kind of go all in on something when it's fairly unproven, unless there's no, you know, restrictions. Like if it's, I think you can still have those like one-off viral hits, but I think those are like unplanned anyway. Like you can't schedule virality. So I think, you know, the smaller businesses have that, that they can kind of move first, try something new, but yeah, it might not kind of pan out, but yeah, when it comes to, you know, Facebook Watch and things like that, like they, you know, definitely do miss out on first mover. Yeah. I want to get onto your approach to, well, Buffer's approach to data as well, because I mean, this 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 vertical study that you did, this was, you know, it was brilliant. You spent £6,000, you know, on, on these vertical tests. What is the platform response to all of that? Do you have much dealings with uh, Facebook? Because it seems like there's a culture that they leave these sort of Easter eggs around for, for hackers and developers to find. And it's very much a culture of that. What's their involvement? Yeah, yeah so we have um, like quite close relationships with a lot of the platforms um, from mainly with like the kind of platform API teams that we integrate with. But in terms of like a marketing side, like we don't speak to them too much about what we're doing. Um, but you know, it tends to be largely, I'd say, not ignored by platforms, but like they don't tend to comment either way and be like, oh, this is, you know, definitely the way it is. Um, you know, we tend to just kind of do it for our consumers and users to kind of share what's going on. Because we often, you know, as quite a big presence on social media, you know, we often get questions from people like, what do you think of this? Or like, how should I approach stories? And we kind of see it as our place to be able to give them the answers there Mm. and kind of to point them in a direction of something that will help them. So Mm. yeah, in terms of the platforms, like they don't 
tend to get too involved in the studies and you know maybe saying yes or no or agreeing with with the data we put out there because yeah. i think this is this is the brilliant thing about social isn't it? it it's it's unlike tv and posters and out of home it's not linear in any way there's there's more than one way to string a cat and there's so many different elements to it um and bringing on to some of the data that you found with messaging apps, I suppose, yep. is one perfect mm, example. Yeah. And the stat that you uh, found was that 50% of marketers um, are not planning on using messaging apps. Uh, so this was part of this state of social report that we obviously both worked on, Social mm. Training Buffer. What what does that stat tell you when, when we know messenger apps to be, you know, the big thing at the moment? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. It's like we've also like played around with messenger a little bit and like, you know, I've spoken to a number of people that have had like crazy open rates and click rates with messenger platforms. And, yeah, we've, you know, we've seen some big success great. on WhatsApp. Mm. And yeah, I kind of feel like there's a couple of reasons why marketers might be hesitant. And like the first one is kind of the uh, not owning the audience. So I think people have kind of become a bit wary of that with, you know, building up a large Facebook page. And then a couple of years ago, it's like now the reach is next to zero. You have to pay to reach these people. And I think... There's definitely like a concern there with like, if I build up 20,000 people in Messenger, like I don't own those like I own an email address or you know, not own the email, but the data behind yeah. it. You know, if you maybe run your email list through campaign monitor and then they make a change you don't like, you can go to MailChimp. Whereas as soon as Facebook or you know WhatsApp make a change, you're kind of still playing by their rules there. Mm. So I think that's like one concern, um, but I think there's definitely like a trade-off between that concern and like you know building your audience now and doing what's working and getting such great results. That's, that's yeah, an interesting definitely. point though as well because that, that's something we've heard a lot recently, <laughs> isn't it? That you, you know, you must remember Lee Wilcox from uh, on the tools we had on yeah. recently on the podcast. He said a perfect thing where it's like we don't actually own anything. No. This is all owned by Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth. Is that quite a genuine fear? among marketers, would you say? I think it's something that's become, I've seen it certainly mentioned a lot more over the last couple of years. Like I you know, follow a lot of marketers on Twitter and it's something that I see pop up every now and then, you know, people talking about, you know, maybe growing their Instagram audience or, you know, messenger bot on Facebook. And, you know, there are still, there's always like one or two comments along the lines of like, oh, remember you don't own this audience. Mm. And and I think to some extent, like, that's fine because you get these really great companies, you know, like on the tools growing out from these Facebook pages. But I think there is always like a little thing in the back of everyone's mind where like, you know, I am susceptible to platform changes at, at any moment here. Yeah. At any given time, they can just like pull <laughs> oh, the rig out from under you. Yeah. I think that's why people have turned to podcasts more, though. Because that's, that's yeah, like, zonable, again, it's, scalable media, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, not, not something where you're just like stuck playing by one company's no, rules. You not. can actually own a space. It always reminds me when people talk about uh, SEO, the, uh, I think it was Panda and Penguin, those two updates that sort of oh, wiped yeah. everybody off like the yeah, face of the planet. Yeah, that's true, you know? actually. I feel kind like of, sometimes social media marketers get a little bit spoiled <laughs> with like people who have been doing uh, SEO for years mm. are used to having massive changes that completely disrupt everything they do. Like every couple of months, work. like, yeah, like completely uproots it and they just have to adapt and change everything. And yeah. we get like one like massive update like, every like five years. I'm like, exactly. oh my God, everything's ruined. Exactly. Do you think with that then, is there a feeling that, is that debate of whether, you know, the platforms have too much control? I mean, on, on one side, this is a service that marketers and brands are paying a lot of money for. Yeah, I think I'm kind of, you know, also torn on it a little bit, but I think, you know, the platforms, 
should kind of have control because like they have built up these massive networks that we use and I think they definitely have responsibility to kind of treat the users and the creators like fairly um, I think you know if you've got I think YouTube started doing it quite well like making sure like creators were paid and making decent money and I think that's the problem with like Facebook is like one algorithm change it can literally like wipe out a business mm. um and they, you know, definitely owe the creators a lot there. Um, and but also, like, if you built your business off their platform, like without it, maybe you wouldn't have been able to get to that stage. Yeah, and, true. You know, it's it's very hard. I think there's a a fine line. And in some ways, it's almost like, well, what did you expect? Yeah, it's mm. you know, it's tough. And you know, like you say with SEO, like it's you know been happening with Google for a long time. Mm. I think maybe SEOs are a little bit more used to it. And um, yeah, you know. That's been that extremely, industry. extremely lucrative for Google's ad business. Yep. So I think Facebook yeah. is just trying to do the same thing. I find it interesting as well, looking at the uh, stats from the uh, same state of social report that Facebook is still overwhelmingly the most popular uh, platform for the businesses surveyed in mm. this, which I think, again, sort of shows that kind of... Uh, chasm that exists between you know SMEs and big corporations because you know we'd be sitting there saying well you know Instagram definitely which which in the study was 57.8 percent would definitely be much higher to Facebook mm. and yeah I think that's an interesting one like we've done state of social now I think you know, this year was the third year and Facebook's been top every year um which I think hasn't been too surprising but I could see the gap maybe closing with Instagram in the next year or mm. so um but yeah I just think Facebook has such kind of mass adoption and every few months there might be something come up and a small percentage of users leave Facebook and maybe growth like goes a bit stale for a while, but then it always bounces back. And there was a study, um, it was a couple of years ago, I remember I kind of found it when Instagram changed their logo and everyone kind of went a yeah. bit like odd with Instagram for a couple of days. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's kind like, of right, bit, that's you know. it. I'm not using Instagram again. It's like two days later, it's like, oh, okay, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's like literally exactly what the study found was like, when these platforms make a big change, the users go, oh, I hate this, change it back, like kind of focus a bit of energy on revert back to what you were doing. Mm. But then they get over it and start using it anyway. And I think Facebook's kind of at that stage where it's like, they're not perfect. They, you know, definitely have a, you know, make a few missteps here and there. And um, a lot of it's been coming out in the public recently, but like they have such a critical mass of users and, you know, so many people kind of almost rely on it where even if you don't use Facebook, you use Messenger or WhatsApp or in Instagram. Family apps, aren't yeah. You? yeah. So, you know, it's for me anyway, like it would be hard. I probably wouldn't speak to many of my friends if I like stopped using Facebook apps, you yeah. know, it'd be like, back to text messages and phone calls and same doesn't apply yeah. for snapchat though does it in terms of uh you know bouncing back after a major kind of change so i'm just thinking about the redesign and uh 4.1 percent of marketers in this study uh post content on snapchat i suppose mm. one because it's ephemeral but you know in, in comparison it's uh, they in their um q1 earnings just came out snapchat has actually grown Ooh. Again, like for like the first time in ages, but you're right, it took them ages to bounce back from that redesign. It's a real kind of, I suppose you see the other side of it as well, where, where you know, these updates that, that don't go well. Yeah, definitely. I think like Snapchat is an interesting one. Cause like I was for years, like really excited about Snapchat, really loved it. And, you know, then Facebook kind of took the core of it and integrated it into its own apps, which has kind of brought a lot of what I loved about Snapchat over. But mm -hmm. I think the other thing, 
that I think is interesting about Snapchat is how like much control, not control, but like how many people in the younger generations like Gen Z actually use it. Because yeah. I think in that Q1 earnings report, it was something really high. It was like 75%. 75% yeah. of 13 to 16 Yeah, something along those That's lines. That's what I mean by yeah. having to remember yeah. the stats. It's 13 to something, you wrote. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, a really like core young audience. Yeah, and like the, the thing I've always kind of thought about that is like, does Snapchat have to compete with Facebook to be successful? Like, mm. you know, is it... It's probably better off not doing. Because, like, yeah. Twitter, I'd argue, has kept its success by just staying true to its USP. It's, like, yeah. the only platform that didn't say, right, well, we're going to bring out stories yeah. and we're going to do this, this, and it's this. It's not been cloned, has it, with Twitter? No. That's, that's an interesting no. point. It's like, I kind of almost think, you know, with networks, I think everything is automatically compared to Facebook. But yeah. I try and think about it as, like, TV channels. It's like, if Snapchat is maybe, like... Nickelodeon or whatever like people don't say Nickelodeon is doing terribly because Sky Sports does well yeah mm. and like mm. maybe we need to like break them apart a little bit and just say like you know Snapchat is for 13 to 16 year olds that's the place you go and you know you can get amazing results there but for maybe a more mature audience you go to Facebook and yeah you know it's they can each do hard, their job yeah to, to separate them but I think we kind of treat social media as a whole thing whereas they're each channel is very different. I want to cover onto influencer marketing as mm -hmm. well because I know you've done uh, some some sort of uh, some research around that and where that's going because I feel that influencer marketing is going for a real shift at the moment and I'm sure you guys have probably seen it at Buffer as well in terms of talk about authenticity yeah. more. It was in a state of social again, wasn't it? It said that, um, again, I can't remember the percentage, but a, a massive portion of marketers didn't think that the guidelines around influencer marketing were clear enough. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, it was like something like five or 6% said it was like very clear. And yeah. I think that's like one thing that, I know there are like certain boards that have been set up to try and regulate influencer marketing a bit more, um, but you know, I'd, every day I'll scroll through Instagram and see something that's quite clearly an ad, but, you know, it doesn't have the hashtag ad or yeah. it's hidden at the bottom of a 2000 character caption. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think, yeah, there's definitely some issues there around the, you know, like clarity and authenticity of ads and making it clear that you've been paid to post something. Mm. Um, but then like on the flip side, the, you know, marketers that we surveyed that had used Instagram marketing or influencer marketing, um, I think it was something like between 85 and 90% had said they're going to continue in 2019 with influencer marketing. Yeah, so that's positive. It's kind of, it's working um, for the brands that are embracing it. But I think there's just still that mm. confusion around like when it, how you announce it's an ad. Like, yeah. And, you know, if you don't do it, like what are the consequences and, and things like that still yeah. need to be cleared up. Funny yeah, thing is though, sorry, you carry on. I was just going to say, I think that's like, it's. I was going to say it's positive that people are seeing that it works for them and it, they're carrying on with it. But it's kind of contradictory in a way if they're saying, okay, we're going to continue putting all this money into influencer marketing, into these strategies, but we don't actually know what the guidelines are and they're still very confused, but they're just like, oh, we're just going to yeah. throw money at it anyways because they think they should be doing it, not necessarily because they understand how to do it. You, there, there seems to be a lot of that apathy, doesn't there, yeah. in, uh, in, in in social media, you, you, you find. And that's that's what I've always found. You know, we're, we're, in, we're sort of like in the high castle a bit because we can kind of... Uh, see changes like yourself mm. and rationalise them and say, okay, right, this is the bigger picture. Mm. But like for everyone else, I wonder if it is maybe a reflection of how smaller brands um, uh, mm. are viewing it. Yeah, Very I think it's, it is definitely like 
a challenge with kind of clarity of the rules. And I think it's just really hard because, you know, there's so many different advertising boards and, you know, now so many brands, like especially if you look at like the, some of the D2C spaces where the brands are kind of growing rapidly internationally and you've not just got like the English rules to deal with. There's yeah. maybe different rules in America. And I think, yeah, it just kind of almost needs to be cleared up somehow. I don't know what the answer is, but it's like, you know, you create a Facebook ad and it's very clear it's an ad. Now, if it's political, you tick a box and it says it's political on there. Yeah. Like there's no, it's very black and white. Whereas when you're paying someone else to post, like, you know, Instagram's added that paid partnership with brand mm. and like tag in the top of the post. But if that's not used, it can be really hard to spot. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you do have to scroll through a long caption or, you know, look through 20 hashtags and see that one is sponsored or yeah. ad. It's funny Sneaky though as well, but there's, there's a lot as well, isn't there, about uh, there was a there was a sort of uh, not so much a backlash against using it, but I think a lot of people mis wrongly interpreted that oh, just by saying something is a paid promotion, um, you know, it can affect the algorithm or people might not be as so receptive. But I think that's complete. Well, we found that to be BS in the end, really. Didn't yeah, we, with a lot yeah. Of things there, and, um, there is a study that shows that users aren't actually deterred by the use of hashtag ad in posts like the fine if it's a creator that they follow for a while they'll be loyal to them anyway and the fact they actually do want to support them it's when people do it and try and like deceive their audience mm. or do a partnership that's completely inauthentic that's when there starts cheated. to be backlash yeah it's kind of it's really interesting how those kind of rumors spread because i always see them like when you know if instagram changes its algorithm you see like loads of posts going like click on these three dots and set mm. like show first or you know whichever the option is to yeah so the whole wave of turn on notifications and, when they yeah. when they went from I mean, this, this must be fascinating to you though all these all these rumors that you know yeah. come along and that, that you've, yeah. you've got to go away and debunk what, what, what have been some that have popped up in the last few years yeah that... so a big one like for us and it's quite a tough one as a third party publisher is like we've we always receive questions about you know, publishing to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for a third party will like, affect your reach. And it was about probably three or four years ago, I wrote something about it first and I was like, you know, quoted a statement from Facebook where they kind of said like, we don't penalize reach from any tools. Mm. But the rumor kind of kept persisting and, you know, yeah. we'd always get like customer service questions and things like, you know, will this harm my reach? And then we kind of just went out and we're like, we need to not put a stop to it because you never will fully. Um, but, you know, let's create a study that we can try and be as objective as possible so that people aren't saying, oh, you know, you're buffer. Of course, you're going to say this. Mm. Um, so we kind of went out and then recruited, I think it was around 50 people, like social media managers of various brands, um, got them to post for a week, like organically, then through Buffer, through Hootsuite, through Sprout Social, and, you know, essentially what we found was like there was no correlation at all between when or what tools you use to post and the reach of your content. And I think that kind of helped us to almost confirm again that it's like the only thing that really matters is like the quality of your content yeah. and how much it connects with your audience. Like it doesn't matter really where you're publishing and, you know, what time to publish. Like that was that's always been a big one for us. Like we used to have tons of blog posts about like the best time to tweet, the best time to post on yeah. Facebook. And I think back in the day, like they were really good and um, really useful for people that were starting out. Whereas yeah. now it's kind of like we've almost like wound that one back and been like, look, there's no best time to post on Facebook. But Because nothing's chronological yeah. anymore, I suppose, is it? Yeah. So it's just completely... Started out as like uh, guidelines, didn't it? When, when social media was new. Definitely, but I find yeah. that there's still brands 
um, who take those guidelines as gospel, even though they might not necessarily work. Yeah, I, I think so. Like we, you know, like I say, I think we've definitely like added to the noise in that. And we've kind of been, you know, saying this is the best time to post to Facebook. And I think it's just an education piece. And like once people maybe get a little stuck in their ways of like, you know, I think publishing at 5 p.m. on a Friday is the best time. It's hard to then kind of say that's not affecting your reach. Like, mm. actually, it's just the content that you post at 5 p.m. on a Friday might be better than the stuff you post on a Thursday. Yeah. Like, and I think it's just kind of breaking those cycles for people and saying, like, you know, social isn't that simple. And it's yeah. like, you know, what works <laughs> this year won't work next year. And, you know, it's Do you think time difficult. of day doesn't matter at all? I think being timely can help in certain occasions like around events yeah but i also think like the facebook and instagram algorithms like haven't quite figured that out yet because like i still see um you know like i'm a big sports fan and i might see a post about my team's result on saturday afternoon on like a monday afternoon i'm like well yeah. that that was relevant <laughs> like two days ago yeah if you're an um, Arsenal fan, it's usually it. reliving the pain again, <laughs> yeah. two times, three times. Okay. So yeah, they just yeah, like right. put us sports fans through the ringer like <laughs> multiple times per week. I find that on LinkedIn, I'll be seeing posts that are like a week old. I'm like, come on, keep up. Oh yeah, but yeah, I, exactly, I have, yeah. I have to say, I have found on just on my personal use when it comes to Instagram. If I post in the evenings, I'll get a lot more engagement than if I post any other time of day. And I feel like Instagram even though it moved from fully chronological, it said that its algorithm takes timeliness into account. And I believe that it does to an extent just because I've seen that, you know, it makes sense people who have finished work mm. then come on Instagram mm. and that's probably when my friends and that are looking at um, looking at the platform. Whereas in the morning, no, no one's looking. And I do see that reflected. Definitely. So I think there's Definitely. some truth in it. I know... Um, Obviously, you said there's rumors around these kind of updates that you have to debunk and like Facebook and the other platforms are always going to come out and say, no, you know, that's not the case. We're not hindering this reach because yeah. of X, Y and Z. But have you ever run a study and actually confirmed a rumor that Facebook or otherwise might have been denying? Um, I don't think there's any that we've really like confirmed too much. Like I think... Facebook themselves have actually got a little bit better the past few years of like saying what they're trying to do. And I think yeah, a lot of that is their like transparency. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think now when Facebook says it, it's kind of hard to disprove. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of that is probably just due to Facebook themselves getting a lot better with being transparent with how the algorithm works. And like, I think Instagram's is still a little unclear. Like they've said, I think there's like six factors that they take mm. into mind about it but you know we don't know exactly how it's weighted but you know with Facebook when they say I think it was last year like friends and family stuff is going to come up higher and anything yeah. that mm. they still use a little bit of vagueness like we um, you know look for meaningful engagement on posts oh yeah that old chestnut it's hard yeah. to say exactly yeah. what that <laughs> is but um, yeah I think you know there are maybe less rumours about how the algorithms work now because they do try and tell people Love yeah. to know the meaning behind meaningful engagement. Well, don't we, that we've said. What, what, what was your? You mentioned Facebook algorithm. What, what was your reaction to them? Uh, you know, being more transparent. They, they released this feature a few months ago where they said, "Oh, how? Why am I seeing this post?" Basically. Yeah, I think it's really good. Um, I think it really helps from a user perspective. I think just with like gaining trust of the public that use Facebook again to kind of say, you know, why they're seeing it, and I think. The algorithms 
get a lot of stick. Like I think if you could go back to social media without algorithms, it would seem a lot worse than we remember it. I think we have yeah. like fond memories of those early days, whereas it would just be chaos now. Yeah, definitely. It was a better time. It was yeah. like, actually. But I mean, the platforms say this, don't they? Mark Zuckerberg himself has said, you know, we are trying to, it, it's, it's the analogy of you can't please everybody, can you exactly? And they're no. trying to please two, over 2 billion people. I mean, not yeah. defending Facebook. Either. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a hard position. But I think like, you know, I, I can't remember why, but for some something I was working on, I went back and saw on my page, like all of the pages that I follow. And there were so many that like I'd kind of followed as like a teenager and yeah. have no relevance to me now. And if I was opening Facebook and I don't know, a random post from a movie that came out in 2002 popped up, like it wouldn't be a good experience for yeah, me. That's, that happens to me sometimes. There was, like a, there was like a wave. It must have been when pages got big. I would, I would have been in like year eight or year nine at school. And every, <laughs> there was like a wave of everyone just following these pages with like the most ridiculous names. And you forget that you followed so many. And yeah. I thought I unfollowed a lot. But every now and then, one of them pops up and like posts something or like is trying to reinvent themselves and I'm like oh my god I have to like unfollow and you know I, I, I suspect a lot of people listening to this as well will, will still remember you know relationship status favourite books favourite films yeah, favourite TV yeah. show you yeah. know yeah. you're innocently like putting, it, all, putting all your data into there it's like Justin Bieber <laughs> fan pages coming up like. exactly yeah and I was saying how does Facebook know so much about me <laughs> yeah. yeah I think that's I kind of forgot it was all like you had your favourite movies listed because I've yeah, got so many of those random pages that yeah. I just you know have no interest in now but still follow that's it. I think it's weird that Facebook still thinks that some of those things might still be relevant. Still matter now, think yeah. it would know better. I've got a sort of uh, a wider question again, and that is uh, inspired by a bit of what we were talking about. But is are we in a sort of culture where brands are kind of hiding behind the numbers a bit, so using that as an excuse for you know their creative not being strong, mm. for instance? Our uh, US managing director said it really well. He said, "Stop optimizing shit creative." with mm. data basically yeah I think so I think it's especially in a world where like paid media goes so far now um, you can take something that maybe isn't great and make it look great through paid and almost like forcing it on people mm. and yeah I think we can definitely kind of be not constrained by the numbers but you can be driven by you know the numbers and just like doing the same things over and over again and getting in the habits of boosting posts and thinking, oh, you know, that's generating good results when really it's mm. just like you're just putting it in front of so many people that it's getting the odd click. Yeah. And, and that has ramifications, doesn't it? Yeah. I.e. mistrust in advertising. Yeah. And yeah, and I think it's kind of, you know, for brand, I think we're seeing it now where brands are really starting to kind of get content as a whole. It's not like shouting about your products or creating your adverts. You know, mm. you're seeing brands really focus on like using their um, maybe like ambassadors and their team almost as you know figureheads to drive the company forwards and it's not creating a 30 second advert it's maybe a 10 minute documentary behind the scenes at the office or mm. showing manufacturing processes and I think yeah we're kind of going back to that um, you know, I need a better word, but authenticity. Of, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I think we all <laughs> say it too much. We're trying to put a ban yeah, on that yeah, word, exactly. but you can't yeah, help it. There's, yeah, there's not a the good enough substitute now. Isn't it? If you find an alternative, send, <laughs> send it over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Two copywriters, yeah, I'm sure we're there. I know, I know. Yeah. Between us, we haven't thought of one. Exactly. Um, I, I wonder, sort of following on from that point, if there are some brands who put out a piece of content 
and then it doesn't perform so well. And then they, they blame their like bad reach or bad engagement figures on the, oh, well, Facebook's clamping down on organic content or Facebook's hindering this reach yeah. and not actually owning responsibility to improve their content. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Like kind of almost going back to the study I mentioned with like the third party tools, I yeah. think it's almost easier to blame the platforms for content not performing than to say, I need to go back to square one and rethink this whole mm -hmm. strategy and start again. And I know like as a marketer, it is hard to do that. And like, especially, you know, if you really love this piece of content that you've been producing and, you know, I find it all the time. And even with like a blog post you put out, sometimes you think there's something that's going to do really well and you've really loved creating it. Then you put it out there and it's like not quite achieved what you'd hoped. Mm. And it kind of sucks to sit back and go like, okay, that was probably on me more than, you know, Google or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, it's just like, yeah, it's hard to maybe like deal with that as, as a person and say like, yeah, the fault lies with me. I need to rethink it's it. And yeah, definitely. And start, you but know? you're so right. Like a lot of marketers do fall into that trap, like myself included, um, like made content before yeah. and think, you know, I'm such a fan of this. This is going to blow up. And then, and then it doesn't. And I think that's like a bit of a wider problem that we have where yeah. marketers become so involved in their own um, personal preferences and even like the the brand as a whole and make the mistake of thinking that everyone cares about your content as much as you care about your content. Yes, yeah. I think the hard thing as well is like, you know, we all care so much about the content we put out, mm. but you also have to kind of remember like when you're publishing to Facebook or Instagram, like you're competing with like wedding photos, like your friend's dog doing something silly, like, <laughs> These kind of things that can't compete you know, with yeah, you can't <laughs> compete with <laughs> all the time. You know, it's like news feeds, wasn't it? So yeah. sort of comes yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, a final point to kind of wrap us up. There's a lot of talk about ROI, a lot of talk about vanity metrics. I've got here another one from the State of Social Report. Is that 60.3% of marketers uh, still rank engagement as uh, their best sort of measure of ROI on social media? So that's above sales, that's above leads, that's above reach, brand perception, so on and so forth. Is there any hope for us? Are we are we going to get to a point where we finally realise that engagement isn't the be all end all of your social media campaign? I think we'll get there. I think it's just hard to get away from engagement, and I think engagement is it's the easy answer in a way to kind of say you know we're getting loads of likes and shares and, and all of this. And I think we're seeing you know more and more people pay attention to the sales, and you know I'm sure if we went back and looked at the first and second year we'd done state of social engagement would probably be even higher and everything else would be lower. Mm. But I think we'll get away from that world. And I think as reporting tools get better, um, you know, engagement will dip and it's still a nice metric to know that what you're doing is creating with people, but like engagement needs to be followed up with something. Like if yeah. your you know, strategy is we want to get loads of people engaging with our content and then nothing, like you maybe need to rethink it. Whereas if it's, you know, engagement is maybe step one where it's like top of the funnel, let's get our brand in front of people. Then we show them this piece of content to bring them to our website. Then, you know, this one to convert them. Mm. I think, yeah, we need to start thinking in funnels rather than like engagement as this, you know, big kind of holy grail. Yeah, of it's not like media. an angle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that the platforms are sort of the ones leading this change as well. I mean, recently, yeah. uh, Instagram and Facebook, I think it's Instagram, 
talk talk of hiding likes and yeah. Same follower with numbers as well. and stuff like that. So yeah, a big a big one. I'm sure yeah. that you'll yes. uh, look into further um, in, I, over the next report. I have one final question: Are there any or like what trends are you seeing emerge for the rest of 2019? Have you got any secret nuggets of wisdom you can share with us? So yeah, I think the one that I'm personally really excited about is the ways people start using stories ads. Um, so I think last year was kind of like, well, the last couple of years has been the rise of stories kind of taking over social. And last year, like we started testing with um, Instagram stories ads and we were able to get some clicks to our like blog content for, I think it was like six cents per click. And like that was really low compared to the mm. feed adverts. Um, but then again, like in the state of social, which we kind of surveyed around like December, January, kind of launched it in January. There was, I think it was 62% of marketers said they hadn't used story ads yet, but 61%, so almost that group again, mm. said they were going to in 2019. So I think at the moment, there's like disproportionate value in stories, especially if you get the creative right. Um, yeah. Because so many are still kind of just ticking that box on ads manager to roll out their feed ads to stories and they don't look great. But, you know, if you can nail the creative there and... Um, really connect with people. I think there's tons of value to be had in stories ads this year. Mm, one to watch. Yeah, definitely. Oh, thanks ever so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's, thank uh, you. it's gone really fast, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Again, thank you. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. 